Good morning. How's everyone? Tell me what I'm saying. What am I saying? Don't say nothing, Jeannie. I'm making an attempt here. What am I saying? Does anybody know? That's sign language for Happy Easter. I just learned that. Now, for the sake of those like Jason who's not with us, so that he wouldn't rebuke me or recorrect me, I say, Happy. What did I say? Happy Resurrection. That's right. I just learned that too. Happy Resurrection. We're so glad you're here. And uh, I, I just, I'm just so thankful you're here as a guest. I, I hope that you've been visited by the people of PBC, more importantly. I hope that you're visited by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. As we talk today about the quality of life, that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the quality of life, specifically the quality of the Christian life. We want life. And we as mankind will go to great lengths to hold on tightly to life. That's one of the reasons that the anti-aging business will generate over $80 billion in a year's time because people want to feel as if they're holding on to life. Now, to be a little more drastic, we can be so consumed with holding on to life that we can even pursue immortality or eternal life for men from the hands of men. As a matter of fact, billions of dollars will be donated for the specific research of exploring immortality in this life among men from men. There are countless people that upon their death they will have their bodies frozen with the hope that one day old age will not be a fact of life, but it will instead be a disease that can be cured. One specific multimillionaire is 100% certain that humankind will obtain immortality by the year 2045 to the point that him and others are sinking millions of dollars into the specific research of uploading or downloading. I don't know the difference. The human mind, the human consciousness into cyberspace with the intention of transitioning the human mind and the human consciousness onto a bionic avatar that can engage life mindfully and consciously. Isn't that crazy? Larry Ellison, who is the fifth richest man in the world, stated, death makes me very angry. To the point that he donates $40 million a year for the purpose of the research of immortality because he believes this of death. It is another kind of corporate opponent that can be outfoxed. Now, we're being introduced to a mindset that would seem to suggest that the goal of life is to evade death. I get it, I think, 
I mean, Jesus did say in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is there at that very place, your heart will be also. So we're not just being introduced to a mindset that would suggest, hey, I love life, and that's kind of coupled with the fear of the unknown, therefore I just kind of want to hang on. No, we're being introduced to a mindset that would suggest the greatest treasures that can be obtained are right here, right now. The greatest treasure that can be obtained is found in my life of luxury, my possessions, my things, my standard of life, my quality of life. This is the treasure that I long for. The question necessarily is, well, what happens then in 2045 when the death rate is unchanged? Or as a Christian t-shirt that I recently saw said, and I think it was one of the youth that had it on, it stated this, statistics prove that how many out of five people die? Five. Five people out of five people will die. It is a proven statistic. So therefore, I want to offer another suggestion other than the goal of life is to evade death. The suggestion I want to make this morning is that the biblical perspective of death leads to a higher quality of the Christian life. Let me rephrase or restate that. The biblical a biblical perspective of death leads to a higher quality of the Christian life. Now this morning I pray by God's grace we're going to make much of the resurrection so we're going to step aside from our study in the book of John. Not that we can't explore this grand truth in John chapter 6 because we can. Jesus is the bread of life. But for the purpose of what I feel God may be wanting us to hear this morning. We're going to direct our attentions to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I invite you to turn there. It's a passage that Jason read this morning. First Corinthians 15, <clears throat> verses 12 through 22. <clears throat> Quality of a Christian life, what's it look like? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And the grave consequences, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Good news. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, Lord, seeking life, needing life. The greatest need for anybody in a lost condition is life. The greatest need of any believer that's sitting in this body, the greatest need is ongoing life. Greater life. God, we need life. We're prone to wander toward deadness and dead things. So Lord, our cry is very specific. God, give us life. Reveal to us our need for life. Show us where the truth of the quality of the Christian life really comes from. God, we, we desperately need You and we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things that I want to point out in relation to the quality of life or, better said, the quality of the Christian life. First, it begins with a surrounding view of the resurrection. The quality of life begins with a surrounding view of the resurrection. And the second thing I'm going to point out about the quality of life is that it begins with a biblical view of death. A biblical view of death. So let's talk about the quality of life begins with the surrounding view of the resurrection. Let's go back to verse 14 and read through to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's important that we are very, very certain from the outset That when Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, it's very important that we note that that is not an idea that he is presenting that can for a brief moment be entertained. He is simply pointing out the hopelessness, and to be quite frank, the pointlessness that would exist if we attempted to live out the Christian life, or the principles of the Christian life if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Now, you may say, wait a minute, I just don't know about that. I mean, listen, even if Christ was not raised from the dead, I mean, listen, He came, He taught us well, 
He had a lot of good principles that he laid out and a lot of good truths that he laid out. And you know what? Even if he had not been raised from the dead, it would only serve as an overall good to all of humanity if we attempted to live based on everything that he taught, even if he had not raised from the dead. And to that, beloved, I say, good luck. Good luck, because the problem is not primarily here. The problem is primarily right here. And I think it's a pretty bad joke to step into a scene and say, hey, I'm the Son of God. I'm going to lay out all of these truths and all of these principles that you need to live by for your good and that will glorify God, and then to leave the scene and not enable us and not empower us to be able to live or even begin to live according to those principles. Why? Because the problem's not here. Primarily, the problem is right here. So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, okay, well how do I endure persecution for righteousness' sake? Whew, I don't know. How do I turn the other cheek? How, how do I love my enemies? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, how do I do those things? Wow, I, that's a great question. I had a Christian friend when I was newly converted. He was sharing the gospel with another gentleman. The guy retaliated in unbelief. And so my Christian friend responds by saying, you know what, even if I'm wrong... I have nothing to lose. We still have the privilege of living a good moral life. But if you're wrong, you have everything to lose. Wrong answer. Why? Because Paul said so. It's a wrong answer because Paul said it's a wrong answer. And Paul said it's a wrong answer because the Holy Spirit of God revealed to him it's a wrong answer. Paul says, if we're wrong, we're the people that should be pitied the most, not the person who doesn't believe. If we're wrong, we're the people that should be pitied the most because we're the people that are deceived the most. If we're wrong, we're the people that should be pitied the most because... Christ has not raised from the dead, and neither will we. If Christ has not raised from the dead, we're the people that should be pitied the most because we will never be raised from the grips of death of any kind, eternally or at the moment regarding the grips of sin. We are the people to be pitied the most if Christ has not risen from the dead. That's why Paul immediately, quickly, runs to the solid, full confidence of verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Obviously, there are those in Corinth that have not been able to make peace with the reality that the dead are raised to life. And anyone that does not make peace with the reality that the dead are raised to life has no hope in themselves being able to be raised to life. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. And I want to insert a principle or perhaps an application that I think could apply for our sake. Because you know what? We may not be dealing with unbelief that Christ has been raised from the dead. 
But I want to suggest, and I believe that quite certainly, we are oftentimes plagued with indifference toward the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. I am quite confident that we are oftentimes forgetful of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. I'm quite confident that oftentimes we are unresponsive to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen, beloved, this is not just an eternity issue, although it is that. And if at any moment... I as a believer am unresponsive or forgetful of the reality that Christ has raised from the dead or I'm indifferent to that fact, then I am bombarded with the reality and I am crippled in effect in wrestling with the sins of my world and the sins of my life. And I believe the Corinthian church validates that fact. How? Well, let me ask you this. Perhaps it is no coincidence at all that the church that we are reading about, the church that we know of as the Corinthian church, perhaps it's no coincidence at all that they are the most seemingly confused church. That they are the most immature church. That they're the church that seems to be openly engaged, boastfully engaged, arrogantly engaged in sinful behavior. Listen, to the point that Paul says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, I can't praise you. Now, if any man wants to praise and edify and encourage a body of believers, listen, it's Paul. But because of their unbelief in relation to the resurrection, Paul says, I can't praise you because when you gather together, you gather for the worse and not for the better. So maybe it's no coincidence at all that the church that we know of as the Corinthian church, the most immature church, just happens to be the church that struggles with disbelief or indifference or forgetfulness or unresponsiveness to the reality of the power of the resurrection. I believe that we're introduced to an extremely relevant principle at this point. And I believe it's this. The more the resurrection of Christ is kept in clear view, the greater the quality of the Christian life. The more that the resurrection of Christ is kept in clear view, the greater the quality of our Christian lives. Let's be honest. We want to detach ourselves from this moment. Paul is speaking to real people about real issues at the real moments, not only of the Corinthians' lives, but our lives as well. You know, Paul makes reference to his preaching. His preaching being in vain if Christ has not raised from the dead. But I firmly believe that Paul would be encouraging us to evaluate, to dig deep and evaluate what it is that we believe about the words that we say in relation to Christ. What do we say about Christ and what is the truth behind what we say that we think would give the words of the gospel life? Yeah, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about their faith 
But I believe that Paul would ask us, encourage us, challenge us to dig deep and to discover what it really is that we believe about Christ. And what makes what we believe, what makes that have life? What gives what we believe life? Yeah, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about their view of the deity of Christ. But I believe that Paul would be instructing us to dig really deep in the recesses of our hearts and determine what it is that causes us to believe in the deity of Christ and put power behind that so that it has practical implications in the day-to-day affairs of our daily lives. Why do you believe what you believe? What is the truth behind what you believe? What are the daily applications behind what you believe? And I want to ask you, have you done that lately, beloved? Have you stopped in your Christian tracks? Have you stopped in your Christian speaking? Have you stopped in your attempts to live the Christian lives just in order to validate that I actually believe what I say I believe? I actually believe it's actually true to me and it's actually true in me. I want to suggest that's a grand practice that I believe we oftentimes forfeit to the point that at age 31, Billy Graham stated the following, I was so filled with doubts about everything that when I stood to preach and made a statement, I would say to myself, I wonder if I can even say that sincerely. So I think that what Paul is doing right now is he is charging us to figure out where is the sincerity behind what we say? What's the foundation that we're standing on? What do we have in existence right now that we can hold on to like a secure anchor, not just the truth, behind this that we can hold on to to keep our marriage intact. Now listen, not just the truth, but the power behind the truth. You see, the truth is, I need to love my wife the way Christ loves the church. But the power that enables me to live that truth out is that Christ's resurrection is my resurrection. Because the truth isn't enough on its own. Where does my hope really lie? I mean, what do I really have confidence in when I'm trying to come alongside my kid, whether they're a toddler, a preteen, a teen, or a young adult, and I'm trying to really encourage them to the truth that, you know what, Christ really is enough on His own. Where does my hope lie? I know the truth to say, but where's the power behind what I'm saying, not just for me, but for them? What can I lead them to that has the power to enable them to know that Christ is enough? What truth do I look to when I find myself struggling with the same sins, bombarded with the same guilt over and over and over, and I'm trying to convince myself that there has to be a better way, I can be a better man? What do I cling to at that moment? What truth Not do I put in front of my face, but what truth enables me in my pursuit of God? Really, I think we need to know where is the courage truly found in order to live out the conviction of the gospel in a very unsympathetic and a very uncaring culture? Where does my resolution truly lie? 
when I feel that God's calling me to a life of missions? Where is my passion found when the truth is I'm just trying to follow God and trying to stir up a love and, and, and cultivate a love for Him and when I don't even really know what it is that I'm believing? Where does that lie? Paul points to the weight of verse 20 when he says this. Look at it with me, please. Paul points to the weight of verse 20 when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So do you know what verse 20 is? Do you know what the weight of verse 20 is? It's the weight of belief. It's the weight of faith. So Paul has spent all of this time previously talking about the what-ifs in the Christian life. Then he lobs out this grand truth. What does he expect us to do with that truth? He expects us to lay hold of it. Listen, Christ has been raised from the dead. Believe it. That sounds pretty elementary. Well, there are some things that can only be grasped and laid hold of by faith. Christ has been raised from the dead. Grapple with that. Christ has been raised from the dead. Apply that to your life. Christ has been raised from the dead. Grapple and wrestle with the implications of what that means to your life. Christ has been raised from the dead. Do not be flippant with that idea, but seek to, to implement that idea into your present life. So it seems as if Paul is pointing to something that Christ has done in the past that is supposed to sustain me in the present. So Paul points back to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, and that truth becomes my truth. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, His resurrection is your resurrection. But Paul's not just calling us to look back. Romans 6, 5 says this, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, that's past tense. Then he goes on to say, We shall, that's future tense, certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, Romans 6, 8 says, which is almost a repeat of Romans 5, 6, 5. Now, if we have died with Christ, that's past tense, we believe that we will also, we will, that's future tense, also live with Him. So, Paul is not only calling us to look back at what Christ has done in relation to Himself. He was raised. He's not just calling us to look back at that truth and embrace that truth and implement that truth and make that truth a reality in our lives. He's also calling us to look forward to what Christ will do in relation to us. Look back and see that Christ was raised and draw your strength from that. Look forward to the fact that Christ will raise you and you draw strength from that and allow that truth as well to encourage you and press you on, and cause you to have your confidence in the present as well. So in other words, we make decisions right now, this day, in this life, based upon the reality and the hope of the next life. So Jesus says, hey, have a feast. Invite the poor. Invite the lame. Invite the widow. Love your wife in a radical way. Man, serve her in ways that you've never served her before. 
deny yourself in radical ways for the sake of the gospel. Man, be a risk taker for the sake of the gospel. Look at the Great Commission with new, enlightened, open eyes. Look at the gospel with a heart and a newness and awareness that it is something that you can do. But know this, you're not going to be rewarded for that right now. It's not going to happen. So you're calling me to love my wife in a radical way, even if she may not be deserving? You're calling me to respect my husband in a radical way, even when I know he doesn't deserve it and I'm not getting anything out of it? No, not at all. Not now. But be blessed and know that you will be repaid, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's when you're going to be repaid. So we make decisions right now based on the fact that we're going to stand before Christ and He's going to reward us. Now, as we talk about the fact of looking ahead a little bit, let's go ahead and talk about the quality of life begins with the biblical perspective of death. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me, please. So what's the surrounding view of the resurrection? Well, it's looking back to Christ's resurrection. It's looking forward to mine. So I'm surrounded by the reality of the resurrection. Can I tell you what that means and what that looks like real quick as an aside? Because in context, Romans 5, Jason also read it and he made, he, he read the passage. The purpose is that we would be dead to sin and alive to Christ. Can I tell you what that does and doesn't mean? Because I honestly believe that the motto of a disciple, a follower of Christ should be, I am dead to sin and I am alive to Christ. Let me tell you that that doesn't mean sinlessness. That doesn't mean perfection. Let me tell you what it does mean. It means that we fail. It means that we fall. So the purpose of the resurrection is to enable me to receive the necessary grace, listen, to get back up, to wipe the dust off of myself, and to continue to be grateful because of the grace extended to me and attempt to follow Christ, knowing this, I'm going to fall and I'm going to fail. And through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, I get back up, I walk toward the Savior, and I fall, and I fail. And because of the resurrection power of the Savior, I get back up, and it goes on and on and on and on. That's the purpose of the resurrection. That's how it applies to our lives. Verse 18. Quality of life. Biblical perspective of death. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, because of the verse, because of the truth of verse 20, which says Christ has been raised from the dead, we've got a privilege with this passage. We can flip-flop it. Just like we can all of verses 13 through 19. And so we can reread verse 18 this way because of the truth of verse 20. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. We have the privilege of reading that passage that way because the truth of verse 20 says Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have not perished. So we are introduced as Christians to the perimeters of death for those who are in Christ, Paul has not perished. 
Charles Spurgeon has not perished. Watchman Nee has not perished. John Calvin has not perished. Our church fathers have not perished. Your great-grandfather has not perished. Your mother or dad, if they are in Christ, they have not perished. Your spouse, if they are dead, they have not perished. God forbid if you have a child that has passed on, they have not perished. They have not. Neither will you if you are in Christ, perish. But we need to understand what that means. Because perish does not mean extinction. Perish means simply to pass from one stage of being to another. So to perish means to pass into a state of hopelessness. To not perish means to not pass into a state of hopelessness, but to pass into a state of hope in Christ. And Paul says... We who are in Christ, we will not pass into a state of hopelessness. So what does that mean to us as believers specifically? And how do we draw strength from that? What did D.L. Moody really mean when he said, someday you will read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am right now. But more importantly, what did Jesus mean when He was speaking to Martha at Lazarus' tomb and He stated in John 25, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, and this is key, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Then he asks, do you believe this? Why? Well, because I believe it's important. This, this is a foundational, essential belief. That's why John, or John MacArthur states that the purpose of the resurrection or the power of the resurrection is the foundation for all other gospel truths to even be able to have life. You have to believe this. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Romans 10.9, if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that what? That God raised Him from the dead. It's essential. Then you will be saved. So I believe that Christ means in John 11, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, eternal life has already been granted to you. Now you may say, I already know that. Let's talk about that a little bit more in detail or try to uncover the details of what that could mean. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. It's yours right now. So let's understand what death doesn't mean to a Christian, for those who are in Christ. Death does not mean that I'm standing at the train station with a ticket that says eternal life, waiting on the train to come that's going to take me to eternal life. Death doesn't mean that. It's uninterrupted. The eternal life that we have right now, it's uninterrupted eternal life. So what it means is, I'm on the train right now as I'm living, as I'm breathing, as I'm sitting here, as I'm engaging, as I'm listening. I'm on the train to eternal life this very instant. He goes on to say in John 5.24, let me just, let me reread it. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, you're granted eternal life right now. You have it. You're on the train. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You're on the train of eternal life. Death is not waiting on the train. You're on the train. What death does is it just takes us on a separate track, leading us joyfully into the presence of a holy God. So what that means for Lazarus and for you and for myself is that although the body lies lifeless, eternal life that we have now, it's just a continued process. It never ends and we're simply taken on a different track, ushered into the presence of God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. They go together. If I'm away from the body and I'm in Christ, I am at home in the Lord. So what is the biblical perspective of death for a Christian, for those who are in Christ. It's this. Death doesn't exist. For a Christian, if you are here and you are in Christ, death does not exist. Therefore, Paul can say with grand confidence, because Christ has been raised from the dead, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Death, you are like a bee buzzing around without a stinger. You cannot harm me. You cannot hurt me. You might annoy me. Your constant buzzing may annoy me. But you cannot distract me. You cannot harm me. You cannot disable me. You cannot cripple me because death is nothing but a switching of the tracks ushering me into the presence of God. Now, let me ask you this. How does that truth lead us to a higher quality of the Christian life? <clears throat> this is my suggestion. Remember several years ago, we were at a Herb Hodges conference in Alabama, and he was talking about the eternal security of a believer. And he made a statement that's kind of been etched in my mind ever since, and I believe it's so true. And what he basically said was, any person that struggles with their security in Christ, that's probably going to be a person that can never fully be used by God because they're going to spend so much of their energies trying to make sure that they're secure in Christ. They're going to be so distracted because of their insecurity that they can't be given to the things that God wants them to be given to. Now, I believe that to be true, and I believe that principle applies here. In other words, the man that is free from the fear of death is the man that can truly and fully live out the Christian life. The man who is free from the fear of death can look at the Great Commission and say, yes, there is nothing to hold me back. The man that is fear from the, or free from the fear of death is the man that can be bold for the sake of the gospel in brand new ways that he's never thought he could be bold in before. That's the man that can take risks for the sake of the gospel because that's the man who has absolutely nothing to fear at all. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, okay, every one of us get on a plane and go to the nations. You have nothing to fear here when you share the gospel. Death has no, no uh, attachments to you whatsoever. You are free to serve. You are free to love. You are free to be a slave and a servant to love for the sake of the gospel. And death cannot harm you. You're free. Why? Death lost its victory over you. You have no reason to be fearful about anything. And you may say, well, I don't know that I'm really fearful of death anyway. Well, let me tell you something I think is a little applicable to most of us. John Piper says, Even when we don't realize it, fear of death is haunting our choices, making us cautious and weary, restrained, confined, narrow, tight, robbing us of risk and adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and His kingdom and the cause of love in this world. Without our even knowing it, fear of death is a slave master binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, and self-centered ways of life. You believe that? Believe that. In 1858, John Patton felt called by the Lord to go to the New Hebrides Islands. It's a string of 83 islands in the South Pacific. He felt that the Lord had laid that onto his heart. And he received much criticism from the Christian community when he felt God calling and submitted to that call. And the reason that he received a whole lot of criticism was because nine years prior to that, two missionaries had went to those same islands And as soon as they got off their boats, they were attacked, killed, and eaten by cannibals. So an aged Christian by the name of Mr. Dixon responds to John Patton and says, The cannibals! If you do this, you're going to be eaten by cannibals! Man, what a risk. What a risk. And this is how John Patton responded. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. (laughs) Now, what's the motivation behind that? Why, Why such a risk taker for the gospel? This is what he says. This is his foundation upon which his previous statement was just made. This is what he says. Because in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours, in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's why he's such a risk taker. Look, why why do we do what we do? Why did Paul do what he did? Why do we go to the nations? Why Why do we go out here and share the gospel? Because 
There is nothing that's restricting us. We are free. Christ is raised from the dead, which means the power that raised Him in His resurrection is the very power that raises me to be confident in the Lord. Yes, the truth is, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. That's not enough for me. I need a truth to empower that truth. And the truth that empowers that truth is Christ has been raised from the dead and the same power that raised Him from the dead is the same power that raises you from your sinful, self-centered ways. Now go love your wife. Not because you can do it, but because Christ has raised from the dead and He can enable you to do it. Why do I do what I do? Because Christ has raised from the dead and He empowers us to do what we need to do for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, you will not accomplish anything for the glory of God on your own if Christ has not been raised from the dead. It's the foundation. Look, the resurrection is to Christianity what the heart is to the body. It is our life. And there is nothing that we cannot do even if it's partly because of the resurrection of Christ. I ask you if you would to bow your heads with me, please. I, I, I pray that you're in Christ. Because remember, to perish does not mean extinction. It means simply passing from one stage of life to another stage. But, but we pass from one stage to another. We will be resurrected. If you are not a believer and you're here, wrestle with that truth. I, I, I love the way that Paul states all the what-ifs. And this is okay, now here's the truth. But the fact is Christ was raised from the dead. Now deal with that. Grapple with that. Wrestle with that. Throws out the truth and says, this is your truth for the taking. Deal with it. Let it change you. Trust it. Love it. Embrace it. Wrestle with it. Make it true in your life. Make it true in your heart. Make it true in your mind. And allow it to empower you to be what you just can't be on your own. If you're here and you're not in Christ... Know this, but the fact is Christ was raised from the dead. You will be raised. If you're here and you're a believer in Christ, maybe it's just a simple matter, matter of forgetfulness. I get it. It happens. I know. I know. If Christ has not been raised from the dead and we're just trying to adhere to truths, Guys, we're doing nothing but being legalistic and pharisaic and trying to adhere to a bunch of things that are established to just contribute to morality. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, there can be a heart change. I noticed that in the book of Acts, if it's starting off with Peter sharing the gospel with with the thousands in the beginning, or whether it's Paul sharing the gospel or encouraging the saints, the gospel is never handled detached from the reality of the resurrection, which tells us that the apostles made sure to keep the truth of the resurrection ever before them. It was the link 
in the power and success of the gospel in their lives. Jason read a passage earlier where Paul said to the Corinthians, I want to remind you what is of first importance that Christ was crucified and then raised on the third day. Christian, it is so easy to forget. It is so easy to be disconnected from the reality of the gospel and the reality of the resurrection that empowers the truth. God, we want to follow You. I I, I believe, Father, that there are those that are in this place right now. God, they, we, we desire to follow You. We want all that the Christian life has for us. We want the fullness of the Christian life. God, we want the full quality of what the Christian life has to offer. And God, we read passages that say things like discipline yourself for godliness or examine your mind or or be a good soldier or do this work or that work. And Lord, we just try to run to that truth and change and we fight and we struggle and we wrestle. And God, so often it's to no avail. That's how a man acts if Christ has not been raised. But because You've been raised, God, You you empower our hearts to change and to desire Your truth and to want to change and to want to love and to want to give and to want to deny and to want to be sacrificial. We need the truth of Your resurrection to empower all of the truths of Scripture and make them real in our lives and the implications and the applications of our lives. God, forgive us for setting the resurrection so often aside and just trying to be good Christians. Change us. Convict us. Help us. And we we thank You that You love us the way a father loves a son. And You don't condemn us this morning if we're in Christ. You just remind us that You, because of grace and the love for us, Christ has been raised from the dead. Our faith is not in vain. Preaching is not in vain. Those people that we've loved, that have meant so much to us, that have left us, that we've deeply loved, they're not lost. Christ is alive. Thank You for the resurrection. Thank You for loving us that way and empowering us to that degree. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.